Good morning, everyone. My name is Chris Quinn. I'm the youth pastor at Portland Community Church, and we just want to thank you for joining us on this live stream this morning. We've been through a really strange couple of weeks, haven't we, as a culture, as a church? And sometimes it starts to feel like things are a little bit out of control. But I wanted to start this morning just to reassure all of you that God was not surprised when any of this happened. God was not taken aback by it. He is still sovereign. He is still in control. And so as we go into what we're going to learn about this morning, keep that in mind. God is in control and God is sovereign. So we're actually starting a series this morning called Unexpected Jesus. It's a series looking at a couple stories in the book of John where Jesus kind of acts in a surprising manner, something that we just wouldn't expect for him to do. And Jesus was constantly subverting expectations, especially because much of what was taught in his day by the religious leaders was not what God intended for his law. They had turned his law into a set of religious duties rather than an expression of their love and devotion for God, recognizing that they had no righteousness in themselves to make themselves right before God. And so much of what Jesus did was to bring out the new and to cast aside the old. And in some ways he was bringing an upheaval into the society that he was in. And so we have definitely experienced that upheaval recently in our culture. And when I actually came up with this idea for this sermon about six or seven months ago, there was no way I could have possibly known we were going to be in this situation right now. And like I said earlier, God knew God totally understood what was going to happen. And so right now, a lot of us are going to be kind of feeling that fear. What's going to happen with our jobs? What's going to happen with the economy, the political world stage? What's going to happen with our kids school and our kids in general? What about our family members who are vulnerable of being sick? How long is this going to take for this whole thing to kind of blow over? And truly and honestly, I actually believe that our society is never going to be the same again. We're, we've gone through some changes that I think are going to be the be resulting in the world for the for a long time. And so I don't know about you. When when I first heard about the coronavirus, I I was a little bit skeptical about how much it would affect our culture, affect our world. And as you can see, it's deeply affected us. So here we are. We're now we're in this place. Everything is canceled. Everything is postponed, put on hold for who knows how long. And so we feel as if the entire, our entire world has kind of been overturned, but I think there is some hope that we can find within God's word to keep us strong during these times. So the story we're going to see today is Jesus bringing about upheaval in his day, but he did it in order to usher in his kingdom and the hope of the gospel to make people right with God. You see, we have to recognize that Jesus constantly works in our lives to reorient our thinking, to help us reprioritize the way that we live because he wants us to learn to completely depend on him and trust in him alone for everything that we have. And so when these trials come up, like this time of the coronavirus, this is what we have a tendency to do. We tend to let times of trial and upheaval lead us to lose hope that God is not at work in our world. But what we need to learn today, this is the important thing, is that because Jesus came to make all things new, we do not lose hope despite our present circumstances. And so this morning, we're going to look at three ways that Jesus comes to make 
all things new. So I invite you to go ahead, turn to John chapter two. We're going to be looking through verses one through 22 this morning. And while you're doing that uh, as a family, as a, you know, just by yourself in your home, uh, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the book of John. The book of John is one of my favorite books. I think it was, I personally think it was written by the apostle John. There's a lot of different debates around that. And, and we don't want to get into the nitty gritty about that. That's too much detail, but John wrote this book for a couple reasons. And here is what he had to say at the end of the book. In John 20, 31, this is what he said. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John wrote the book for two reasons. First, that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God that has been promised for thousands of years who can take away the sins of the world. And that secondly, through believing in him, you would have life in his name. Now, something we have to make sure we clarify here, life doesn't just mean going to heaven someday when you die, although that's correct that we will go to heaven someday when we die, but it's about this abundant kingdom life that Jesus brought to bring in, that Jesus sought to bring into the world by changing us, by radically transforming us. It's this life where Jesus changes us from the inside out because of our belief that Jesus's death on the cross was the perfect substitution to pay the penalty we deserved for our sin. And so as we read through this morning, keep that in mind that when Jesus talks about life, that's what he means. So let's go ahead and read. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had been drawn who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So what Jesus does here is he performs this miracle, but he does it semi-publicly with his mothers and his disciples being the only ones really present. The guests at this wedding would have had no idea what was going on. And remember these signs, as John says later in the book, in John chapter 20, the verse we read earlier, are to convince people that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, so that people will believe in him. And so a lot of what Jesus is doing in these first few chapters, how John records it is he's taking out these old practices and he's bringing in something new. And again, that's ultimately the main purpose of doing this sign here. You see, the old has been around this long time. The Pharisees have brought in this religious system to obey the laws of God and that those things would make you right with God. 
But what Jesus is doing here is he's taking those out, but he does it in kind of an interesting way in this story. Now, if you grew up in church like I did, sometimes this story makes some people a little bit uncomfortable because Jesus turns water into wine. But I want you to understand something is this is what's actually happening here is about what's called social embarrassment. You see, it was the groom's job to make sure that this wedding feast would have enough supplies. And so in an honor shame culture, if he did not have enough supplies, he would be extremely embarrassed. And sometimes these feasts would last up to a week long. So there's a lot of supplies that he has to provide. And actually, there are instances where the groom was actually sued by people in those days if he did not provide enough supplies. And so this shows as well that Jesus is far removed from kind of this stiff, hyper-religious type of person, but he's revealing the generous and giving heart of God. And also make sure you understand this this wine was likely more diluted and not as strong. And so, and people drank it more in moderation, but still you see kind of what's going on here. The interesting thing about one of the interesting things that's happening here is with Jesus's mom. She was probably used to having Jesus at her disposal to do what she needed whenever she needed it. Her husband, Joseph, had passed away, presumably a little bit before this. And so Jesus was the firstborn. And so it was now his responsibility to take care of his mother. But now, as Jesus' time approaches for his ministry to begin, his primary responsibility is going to be that ministry rather than his mother. And so this would have been a huge adjustment for Mary. And so Jesus is actually gently rebuking his mother right here. And so we see this word woman. And in our culture, we, we have a strong reaction to that word. That word comes across differently. Uh, but what Jesus is doing here is he's not using it the way we use it in our culture. It's actually a courteous term, but it's not one that is typically used of a mother at this time. And truly, we don't really have an equivalent in our culture. The closest thing that we can possibly think of is using the term ma'am. It's not something you would typically, uh, in that day, use of your mother, but it did show some formality. But what he's rebuking her for here is trying to get an inside track with Jesus. It's And it's also possible she simply just said that because she's expecting him to go and find more wine somewhere else. But what's apparent here is that her relationship with Jesus is now at a pivot point. It's changing. She can no longer approach him as his mother, but must come to him as that he is the promised Messiah, just like everybody else. And so he says this phrase, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And this is something Jesus repeats several times throughout the gospel of John to say, my time has not yet come. And he doesn't say his time has come until right before he gets arrested in John chapter 17. And so again, in Mary's mind, she might be thinking, can you just go get more wine? But for Jesus, there's greater symbolism as there always is with him. He always sees the greater, deeper meaning to things. And so this time that's going to come, it's also referring to the culmination of why he came of God's work to restore humanity back to the perfect sin-free relationship without any hindrances with him that he created us to have. And so some of us might call that, might think of that just as heaven, but I 
I think it's better to, to use the term the kingdom. You see, when we arrive in this idea of heaven, it is symbolized as this never ending party where the wine never stops flowing. And so that's why this story ultimately That's what this story ultimately points to, especially with the massive volume of wine that he makes. So this is where the connection comes in is that in that day, in when God's kingdom comes to full fruition, Jesus will be the ultimate groom who will provide the never ending supplies for the greatest party ever in his eternal kingdom, where we are celebrating God, worshiping him in all of his glory for who he is and what he has done. And that the symbol of the Bible is that those who believe in Jesus are his bride and that we will be brought to him at the great wedding feast at the end of all things. And so Mary then says, tell him to do, or tells the workers, do whatever he says to do. And so then we look at verse six and we see these stone jars. It says these, these six stone jars that could fill upwards of 60 to 20 or sorry, 20 to 30 gallons of liquid within it. Now think about that. That could be, if there are six of them, that could be upwards of 180 gallons of wine. That is a lot of wine being produced here. But these jars, they were used for religious like washing. And so what Jesus is doing is he's, he's repurposing these things that were used for these religious uh, objectives by the Pharisees, as in you have to do these things to fulfill the rules. And Jesus is saying, nope, here's a greater purpose of fulfilling this greater kingdom that I have in store for you someday this great wedding feast out. And so he's saying out with the old customs and laws and in with the new, and this is the better thing. And so the, the amount of wine here shows the lavishness and the generosity that God will have in this final age. And so the chief waiter or what they call in this, in this translation, the master of the banquet notices something here that it was the best wine yet being served at the party. You see, it was customary as he says here to, bring out the best wine first when people weren't as inebriated. And so they would, they would notice they would be able to taste it. But then later on they would bring out the cheap stuff and people would notice cause they were a little happier. But John is making a really important point here. You see the wine that Jesus provided was obviously better than anything else that had come before it. You see everything that we come up with as humans to try and make ourselves right with God always fall short, including the idea of what the Pharisees had to follow these specific religious rules. That's what's going to make you right with God. Jesus is saying, I have something better. I have something that goes far and above all of that. But notice that John says that this is the first sign. You see, he doesn't keep up really a pattern of talking about these signs, But the resurrection is the main sign that we will see later on if you read the rest of the book of John. But the purpose of these signs, again, is to reveal who Jesus is, to reveal his glory so that people would believe. You see, seeing the sign is one thing, but the important thing here is to put your faith in Jesus because of that sign. And so what's important for us to understand is to look at this whole part of this story and to see the generosity of God. So this is the first way that Jesus came to make all things new is that Jesus gave us a promised future hope of an abundant eternal life with him. 
I think an aspect that we tend to miss about spending eternity with our creator is the lavishness and generosity of God's character in that time. And that's what this part of this story is pointing to. You see, when God gives, he gives lavishly, abundantly, and not out of compulsion, but out of his great love for us. And so the hope of this is that in anything that we face, including this coronavirus, including the quarantines that are coming, including all of these things that have been happening the last couple of weeks, all of this is temporary. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, these things have no permanent hold on us, even if we are affected by, by it in this life. And that even if somehow we were to be affected in the way that we get sick, maybe we even die, we know that we have an eternity set and guaranteed with him, an abundant eternity. But I want you to understand as well, this hope is not just in the next life, but also in this life. I want you to remember a few things that Jesus said about why he came for this life. Listen to this, John 10, 10, he says this, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. You see, it's not just about heaven. It's about having a full life here and now here on earth through our relationship with him. But he also said in John 16, 33, that in this world, you will have trouble. Notice it. It's a promise. You're going to have trouble in this world. Anybody who tells you differently is lying to you or just is not reading the scriptures. So he says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, be encouraged. I have overcome the world. You see, we can have peace in our times of trouble. We can have hope knowing what is to come for us, knowing that the things we're facing are temporary because of what Jesus has done, because of what Jesus has accomplished through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And so we have to understand that things like the coronavirus, things like all these quarantines, they do not have the final word. Jesus's blood has the final word for us. Jesus's resurrection has the final word. And so there are more examples of things that Jesus has said, but know that the future that is in store for us comes from God's incredible abundance. Let's continue verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus stays for a few days and then he moves on to this place called Capernaum. He's going with his family. He's spending time with them. They're going up to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Passover. Now, many of you may have grown up in church and don't know what the Passover is. So I just want to take a quick moment to explain what that is. It was the central, one of the central feasts to the people of Israel where they celebrated their being set free from enslavement to Egypt. You see, they spent 400 years being enslaved to the kingdom of Egypt. 
And so they were looking forward and asking God to save them. And they were waiting and God finally brought about Moses. And then Moses approaches the Pharaoh, the King of Egypt. And the Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let your people go. And so God brings about these 10 things called the plagues in order to basically break Pharaoh's will so that he'll finally let them go. And so the 10th one is what we call the death of the firstborn. And what happened was that unless someone were to have taken a lamb, a perfect spotless without blemish kind of lamb and sacrificed it and then put its blood over the doorposts of their house. If they did not do that, their firstborn child would die. It's this deeply sad story, but all the nation of Israel obeyed these commands. They followed through and they killed the, the, they killed the lamb and put its blood on the doorpost. And so the symbolism here for us is this is a future symbolization of Jesus that when we put our faith in Jesus' sacrifice for us on behalf of us, he is our Passover lamb whose blood covers us from our sin. And as well, allows for God's wrath to pass over us and not actually be taken out on us because of our sin. And so this Passover they're going to celebrate, it was deeply entrenched part of their celebration as a people. It was very sacred to them. But what had happened is many of the Israelites had been spread out across all around the world because of different events that had happened before the writing of these stories. And so they would have to travel to come in to celebrate the Passover since it was so important. And so they would have to bring money. They might've sold some possessions before they came. And so then when they would come, they would need to uh, exchange money because they would have different currency than was being used there. And then they would have to go and buy what they needed in order to follow through on some of the Passover sacrifices, which could include a cow, could include a sheep, could include a dove. And so they needed to go in there. So this market actually was a logical idea for them to have. The problem that Jesus has here is not the fact that there were some sort of like corrupt or underhanded business practices going on here. What's happening is that Jesus is upset about what the temple is being used for as a marketplace and that it was distracting people. It was the location that was the problem with this. I want you to imagine, imagine how loud a place like that could be where it's right next to a place That's supposed to be calm and quiet. It's supposed to have a solemn dignity with the murmuring of prayer, but instead it would have been loaded with the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep, noisy commerce instead of prayer and adoration of God. But the temple was also supposed to be this place where it's the focal point where God met with his people, where God accepted his people because of their heartfelt sacrifice of their animals. And so what Jesus does when he sees this kind of distraction happening, he makes a whip. And I remember the first time I read this story and saw that little detail. I hadn't seen it growing up in church. I missed it. And I think oftentimes we have a very soft picture of Jesus being portrayed in our culture. He's some sort of fluffy teddy bear that just wants to give us a hug all the time. But here we see Jesus get so angry that he makes his own whip and starts cracking it to kick people out of the marketplace because they are distracting people from their time with God. 
What an incredible perspective that is. And it's not to say that we can't actually sell things within the church walls. We just don't turn into a marketplace while we are in the middle of a service. Just imagine the New York Stock Exchange occurring right in our foyer right out here while we are trying to have services. Imagine how distracting that would be. But I want you to understand the whole idea here centers around God being the one who is the focus, not on these distractions. And so here is our second way that Jesus has come to make all things new is that Jesus removed all hindrances and barriers for a relationship with him. See something that has totally revolutionized the way I think about God has been the truth that God not only took the initiative to save me, and reconcile me to him and all of us, but that he did so because he wanted to do it. He desired to do it. He created us to have a perfect relationship with him. And even though we have sinned and rebelled against him, he passionately pursued us. And even though we now have this disease in us called sin because of what we have done, that leads us to make the choices that we make. Jesus died and rose again so that he could give us a new life and cure us of that sin disease. And so then the question becomes, why do we still struggle? And there's multiple reasons, but for what's relevant for us today, I think a huge part of it is because we let ourselves get distracted. Let me give you an example from my life. You see, the hardest part of this quarantine and the coronavirus and all the cancellations for me is actually as a, one of the, one of them is as a sports fan. You see, as the the month of March is my favorite sports month of the year because I'm a huge college basketball fan, and it's, part of it is because it's a huge thing in my family. We fill out brackets, we talk about it. I watch the Final Four with my dad. It's just this very special time for me. I've grown up with, and so when I heard that it was canceled, I was. I mean, I'm still processing and still having a hard time letting that go that they made that decision, even though it makes total sense. Like there's a part of me that's kind of bummed that I'm not sitting here thinking about how like Louisiana Southern Tech is destroying my bracket right now by pulling off an upset. But then I had to think about it. What if God wants to do something in my life without March Madness in the way? And this is a very light example. I want you, I want you all to think about something deeper than that. What if he wants to use this time to get our attention on things that we have been filling our time with? Ultimately, I think we as a culture have become way too busy. And I, and I'm honestly, I'm one to talk. I'm a, I'm a full-time husband and father. I'm a full-time pastor. I'm a full-time student. I am as busy as anybody else right now. But we have to think about this question. What are some things that have gotten in the way of our relationship with God more recently? What are some things that have that are now being taken away because of social distancing and can force us to rethink and reprioritize our lives? I wonder if God wants to use this time in each and every one of our lives to alert us to the fact that we have become far too busy as a culture and that we're missing out on some of the most important things in our lives in particular him, that he's the most important thing. And we've had all these things in the way, distracting us. All our priorities are on everything else except him. 
So don't view this time simply as things being removed from you, but as an opportunity to lean into good things that God wants to bring into your life. In particular, growing deeper in your relationship with him and reprioritizing some other things in your life. So think about this. What kind of upheaval does Jesus want to bring into your life? What things distract you from your relationship with him? I want you to even imagine it this way. Think about those things that distract you. Think about Jesus coming into your life and cracking the whip to get some things out of your life. What would he want to remove that distract you? Let's continue. Verse 18. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So the Jews want to know by what authority Jesus is doing this sign. What is the sign he's now going to do to validate this, this overturning of the temple market? Why, and why was that the right thing to do? And so they actually had a right to ask this question. You see, this is norm. And so this is a normal thing for them to ask the question because what Jesus did was such an extreme thing. But what's happening here is they're showing that they missed the point in two different ways. First of all, they're not showing any sort of inward reflection that they possibly could be doing something wrong. They're missing that point of it. But they're also there. If, if they truly thought that Jesus was a psycho, was a crazy person for coming through and doing this, they had other ways to handle it. But by the fact that they ask the question, they at least have a suspicion that there's more to Jesus than meets the eye, that, that he might be more than just some regular man walking around. What they wanted was a Moses-like sign from the Exodus where he threw his staff on the ground and it became a snake. They wanted something like that to validate why he just did what he did. And so, of course, in his typical style, Jesus answers in a very mysterious sort of way. He says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it again in three days. And so they're thinking very literally, he's standing inside the temple. So they're looking around and they're saying, it took us 46 years to build this and you're going to rebuild it in three days after destroying it. But John makes the connection at the end of this section where he says, after Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples then understood he was talking about his body. And so actually what's interesting is Jesus has this phrase used against him in his trial later on. You see, it's implied the way he says this. He says, you destroy this temple. So he's talking about, if you kill me, I will rise again in three days. But the way that it's twisted at his trial is that they say, he said, I will destroy this temple. And so that's one of the ways that they get him to be accused and to be convicted and sent to be executed. But what does this mean? What is Jesus meaning by saying all this? Well, I love this quote from D.A. Carson, who's a phenomenal biblical scholar. This is what he had to say about this. In this temple, the ultimate sacrifice would take place. In Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice would take place. Within three days of death and burial, Jesus Christ, the true temple, would rise from the dead. You see, in that temple, the actual full sacrifice 
that would pay the full penalty for our sin would occur through the body of Jesus. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about the great gospel hope that through Jesus's death and resurrection, we can have hope to have a relationship with God, to be reconciled to him, to have a new life through him. And so this is our third way that Jesus has come to make all things new is that Jesus's death and resurrection revealed. He had the power and authority to make all things new. You see the apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 1:14 that the Holy spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. You see, when you put your faith in the fact that Christ's death was sufficient to pay for your sin condition and that his resurrection showed that the payment actually cleared and we are truly forgiven and reconciled to God, you receive the Holy Spirit to dwell in your hearts. Paul says that this is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Literally, he's saying the Holy Spirit dwelling in us is God's down payment that he will ultimately fulfill later in the future. That this is the, that Jesus, that God will not default on that loan. That God is going to fulfill what he has promised. And so for Jesus to say, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days, he's pointing to the fact that his death and resurrection are the ultimate sign that he had the authority to clear the temple the way that he did. And as such, he has the authority to grant us the eternal future we've talked about and that he has the ability to come in and he can make all things new. And so that when we look at what we're going through right now, Jesus' death and resurrection gives us, gives us this incredible hope that, again, this is all temporary. So what I want you to walk away with this morning is that because Jesus is making all things new, ushering in his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven, is to trust in him during all of this upheaval right now. And, and I know that can sound really cliche to say that phrase, to just trust him. But I want you to understand something is that Jesus did not come to simply forgive us of our sins, which is extremely important to understand. He did come to do that, but he came to bring his kingdom here on earth through his death and resurrection. And so that we know we live in a broken and fallen world and that things like the coronavirus, they're going to happen, but they are temporary. They are not eternal. Our future with him is eternal. Our salvation with him is eternal. Our reconciliation to him is eternal and forever. But I want us to understand this. We have the creator of the universe who breathed out stars, gave life to all creatures, set the boundaries of the waters and of the clouds and of the sky And that he was the one who authored our salvation, but he is also the one who is authoring the story of how this is going to work out. He came in the form the physical form of Jesus took on human form, taking on the likeness of a servant to make us right with him. This shows his character. And so as a result, we can trust him. Things may not look the way we want. Things may not look the way we desire, but God's plans of how he's going to work these things out for the good of those who love him, like each and every one of us, those things, those plans are good, right, and perfect. And we can trust in him no matter what happens. 
And so make it your emphasis today in your homes, with your families and with your friends to trust that God is still working through Christ to make all things new, that he is working his kingdom purposes here. He's not finished with this story yet. God is going to have great glory come from these from this time, even if there ha- there is going to be great pain that people are going to go through. So we need to trust in his love, trust in his goodness, trust in his mercy and grace to work this out because he is in control. And as well to make a point, I want to encourage you to do this, to love your neighbors, to find ways to serve them, especially people within the church that we know that need help during this time. Make a phone call if someone's lonely or or by themselves. Find a way to provide for people's needs. But I would also say, I think people are going to become more open to the gospel as a result of this. I think there are going to be people who are going to want to hear something greater than what they've been experiencing throughout their lives. And so here's our opportunity to show people the love of Jesus like never before. This is the opportunity for the church to flourish and grow because we will live differently through this time. And so remember that because Jesus came to make all things new, we do not lose hope despite our present circumstances. Let's take a moment and let's pray. God, we thank you that you have come to make all things new. God, that we can trust that even though our circumstances look uh, frustrating and difficult right now, that we know that you are sovereign, you are in control, you are with us, you go before us, you were already involved in what was happening. You knew what was coming. God, thank you for the invention of things like the internet and live broadcasts that can show these things and keep our church flourishing during this time, even if we can't physically be together. So God, help us to take advantage of these tools, to call people, to meet with people online, all those different ways, God, so that we can continue to follow through on your mission and God, to trust that you are making all things new. So help us to know that and to trust you completely. In Jesus' name, amen.